Appreciate that. Um, it is such a, Easter is always such a special time for so many reasons, but I'm, I'm so grateful for our worship team. Can we give them a hand this morning? Thank you. Many of them have been here for the past five days, um, practicing, rehearsing, Good Friday. And I'm so thankful too for Nathaniel and Brittany for their leadership. And then, and for Justin, Justin got the, the room set up this morning for the, the technology to work. Cause I told him that I was announcing it was working and he said, it's not. I said, oh, <laughs> and now it is. So I, I give thanks for these volunteers, for, for this, this team that puts in so much time and commitment and work. So we're going to be in John chapter 20 verses one through 18. It'll be on the screen behind me here. So you can read along or you can, you can close your eyes and listen to the word. You can follow along in your own Bibles, but here we go. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outrun Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and he went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple whom had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. And together we say, thanks be to God. We pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. I want to start this morning with a few stories from history. Really short, very short stories. One day in the, in the mid-1970s, a young man decided to play hooky from school. And unfortunately for him, he got caught. But the principal decided that he should have an unconventional form of discipline as opposed to being put in detention or community service. The principal made him try out for the football team. Many years later... Um, Many years after that, this man retired from the NFL with the most all-purpose yards of all time. His name's Jerry Rice. 
had that principal not decided to punish him by trying out with a football team, who knows if we have one of the greatest, if not the greatest wide receiver to ever live. There was a shipman, a shipman. His name was David Blair. He was a second officer on a cruise ship. Before the ship was to take off, he was replaced. He was relieved of his duties and was replaced with somebody else. We don't really know why, but apparently he took with him the key to his locker. It turns out though, that that key opened a locker that contained the only pair of binoculars on the ship. It was a second officer's job to use the binoculars to look out on the horizon to avoid things that might be on the way on the horizon coming up in the water. Unfortunately for that ship, they had no binoculars, so they did not see an iceberg that was dead ahead. The ship eventually sank after colliding with that iceberg. It was called the Titanic. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. I think it, was, it happened after they filmed this really nice movie about it. James Cameron came up with a cool story, and then it just came true. John Rawl, Johann Rawl, was a, a German colonel who was hired by the British during the Revolutionary War to help put out the rebellion in America, in the colonies. On Christmas night, 1776, he was playing chess with one of his officers. And then a boy came running into the room with a note and he handed the note to the colonel and he put it in his jacket pocket because he didn't want to be disturbed. He didn't want to be thrown off his chess game. You know, chess can be real intense. And so he didn't want to be thrown off his chess game. He put the note in his pocket and he didn't read it until the next day. Unfortunately for him though, that note said that General Washington and his men were crossing the Delaware River into Trenton. Had he read the note that night, the events the next day might have been very different and the course of history could have been altered for forever. And the last story is very familiar. On the 1st of December, 1955, um, the front of a bus was very overcrowded in Montgomery. A man walked onto the bus and told a young African-American woman named Rosa to move to the back. She refused to move and she was subsequently arrested. This was the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, which most will say is the catalyst for the civil rights movement in America. The US, United States Congress called her the first lady of the civil rights and the mother of freedom. When she died, she was the first woman to lie in arrest at the Capitol Rotunda. I tell you these stories not to show you how smart I am about history, because I definitely looked all those up this week, but instead because I want to have a conversation about events meanings, about the meaning of an event. Because I think as humans, we have most of our lives failed to understand a pretty important reality. And that is, where does meaning come from? Meaning, where does it come from? I think we often assume that events themselves inherently contain meaning. If an event happens, it is then meaningful. But I would argue that that's not actually true. I don't think just because something happens that then makes it meaningful. On their own, moments don't have meaning. At the core of its, you know, if Jerry Rice had just been punished and, you know, made to play football, but nothing came of it, we wouldn't remember it. The event wouldn't have the same meaning it does because of the context. David Blair was just a guy who lost his job. Johan Rahl was just a guy forced to, who forgot to read a note. How many times have you gotten a text message and looked at it and forgotten to respond? You put it in your pocket, right? It's just, it happens all the time. It's not that meaningful of an event when you forget to read a note. These same events happen all the time in life. People are punished, people lose their jobs, we forget to read notes, we ride buses, and they don't lead to the same type of life-changing events as these four stories. The thing that makes these four occurrences meaningful is not the event itself, but what we understand, how we understand the event, 
based on what it brings to life, what it brings into being. Meaning doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's always contextual. And I say this, I bring this up because we're talking about a very significant event this morning, the event of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think this is the most meaningful event in human history. There is not a more meaningful event than Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. As we turn back to the Bible this morning, we read from John's account of how things happened. We read from the gospel according to John about the account of the resurrection. But have you ever noticed, oftentimes when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about scripture, we always say, well, the gospel says so-and-so. Or in the Bible, it says blank. Rarely do we attribute to who actually said it within the Bible. We don't normally say, John says it this way. We kind of think like everybody's telling the same story. Everybody's saying the same thing. If it's in there more than once, everybody says it the same way. But that's not actually how it happens. Have you ever noticed that the four gospel accounts, they all recount the resurrection a little bit differently? I want to get in the weeds on this just a little bit this morning. So, for example, this first one right here. At the beginning of the resurrection account, all four gospels say something different about who showed up to the tomb. In the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mary Magdalene and other women go into the tomb. But in John's gospel, it's Mary Magdalene alone. So in Matthew, we have Mary Magdalene and Mary. In Mark, we have Mary Magdalene, Mary, and we have Salome. And in, and, um, yeah. and in Luke, we have Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Mary, the mother of James, and others. That's actually in verse 10, but it says on the first day of the week or in the morning, the women took spices. And in verse 10, it tells us who it was. And in John, it's just Mary Magdalene. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't that, little, isn't that interesting? A second detail, I'm not going to have charts for the rest. I'm just going to kind of run through them. We consider, like, where did they see when they got there? What, what did they encounter when they got to the, to the tomb? In Mark, the women show up to the tomb just after sunrise, and the stone is already rolled away. When the women show up and they walk inside, there's a young man in a white robe in the tomb. In Matthew, it's a little different. In Matthew, the women get to the tomb, and the stone is still there. When they show up, one angel descends from heaven, sits on top of the stone, and rolls it away. And there's two guards there, and they run away. In Luke, once again, the stone is already rolled away. But when the women show up, instead of being one man in the tomb, there's, um, or, or just one angel on top of the tomb, there are two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning, which could be two angels. And lastly, in John, Mary Magdalene shows up alone. The stone is rolled away, but she doesn't even go inside. She doesn't encounter anybody. She, at that point, as we just read, she runs to tell Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And then they come back. They look in the tomb. They see nothing. No angels, no men, no nothing. They go away. And then Mary Magdalene is left there crying. And then she looks in. And then she sees not one man, not one angel, not two men, but two angels there in the tomb. She's crying She's talking to these angels, asking why she's crying. And then all of a sudden, she, she encounters this, somebody behind her. And she just thinks it's the gardener. So the man asks her, why are you crying? She turns around, and assuming he's a gardener, she says, where did you take my Lord? Where is he? Why is he gone? She blames him. And it wasn't looking at him that she realized who he was. It was when he called her name, and he said, Mary, at that moment, she knew that is Jesus. I'm going to pause right there. 
Sometimes we don't recognize who God is in our lives. Sometimes we might look straight at the divine and not see it for what it is. Might not recognize that God, but God knows our names. God cares when we are crying. This is a witness for Mary, but there's meaning in it for us, right? That even when we don't know what's going on, even in our distress, God is still there speaking your name. That's an Easter word right there. That's about the risen Savior. But for the remainder of our conversation, for the remainder of the sermon this morning, as opposed to going line by line through all of the texts and showing how they're different, I want us to talk about the ideas of facts and meaning as it relates to how we understand this, this story, the resurrection, about how we understand the Bible as a whole, right? First, let's just discuss facts for just one second. Aristotle, really famous guy, father of modern philosophy, wrote a book later titled Metaphysics really one of the first modern philosophers who influenced so many people. He talked about there's different attributes of being, of existence. There's substance, and then there's quality and quantity and relation. We talked about this last year a little bit, and I'm not going to try to get too heady or too boring. I'm just, he said, Aristotle said, substance is the most important thing about life. If you have substance, you have matter. Substance is tangible. It's autonomous. It doesn't need anything else to survive. It is just, it is what it is. Substance is what it is on its own. So like this podium has substance. I have substance. You have substance. And Aristotle thought that the chief way of understanding life was being able to touch something, see something, the the physical nature of something. But we've talked about before, God doesn't exist as purely substance. God exists as relationship. The Trinity is a relationship. If there are three persons of God, they are dependent on one another. So we've talked about the substance might not be the highest form of being, but it does impact how we understand facts and history and records and record keeping. Because the same philosophy from Aristotle influenced the Enlightenment, which came up with how we understand record data today, how we understand facts and history. If something is factual, if it literally happened, there can't be up for interpretation. There's no speculation. You would write down, next Woods put two of his hands on the podium, and it happened just like that. And that is how we understand facts, right? Facts are recorded specifically X happened, then Y happened, then Z happened. And it's very substantive. It's very definite. It stands on its own. It's not up for interpretation. That's how most of our, that's how our history book should be written, right? If it was more subjective, then I would have gotten a lot more A's in my history class. I'm just saying, because I made up a whole bunch of history. That's where I have to look up on Google to prepare for my sermons. But the biblical authors, they weren't reading Aristotle and they were not products of the Enlightenment. And so for the, for the sake of our discussion, these four different accounts, they don't have the exact same details of the story, do they? One of them says it happened like this. One of them says it happened like this. And if we're going just from our substantive, history, fact-based mindset, then only one of them can be right in that scenario, right? You can't have four different histories. We don't have four different timelines. Either one of them is right and three of them are wrong or they're all wrong. They can't all be right. It just doesn't work. That's not how facts work. And that's why I think the role of the church and the role of us as Christians is to go to a truth that's a little bit deeper than just fact. Yes, we can sit here and argue all day about how the resurrection happened. What are the specific details? 
But even if we all agreed that this gospel got it the most right, we would then have to kind of deny some of the other stories a little bit. And as a Christian, I think the whole Bible is full of truth. And that truth is a little bit deeper than sometimes we give it credit for, right? And that's where meaning lives. That's where meaning exists. Meaning exists as a deeper form of knowing. A form of truth is not relegated to the rigidity of just the facts. Like, dragnet, just the facts, ma'am. Sergeant Friday. It's a deeper form of truth that we, we understand based on what this event means and what it means for our lives and what it means for the world, right? Because here's the thing, the resurrection, if it was just about how it happened, it wouldn't be all that significant because it's not the only resurrection we even have in the Bible. Just a couple of chapters earlier, Lazarus was raised from the dead and he was dead a day longer than Jesus was. And we're not all walking around as Lazarines. There's no church of Lazarus walking that we can, we can walk into. Actually, there might be. I don't know. There's so many churches. I don't think that there is. I've never encountered my Lazarene brothers and sisters. We're Christians because the resurrection means something. It has significance for our lives. It does something to us. It's more than just an event. It's an event it changes the world. It's an event that matters for history. It's an event that has a deep meaning for everything else that ever happens. And so our job as Christians is to seek out what is that meaning? Where does it live? And Paul really helps us understand that in the New Testament. The rest of our Christian tradition help us understand that. And I think as your pastor, the way that I understand what the resurrection means at its most basic form. I believe that that our Christian tradition, the New Testament, they try to convey this, that the resurrection is God's mechanism for an unstoppable force called grace. The resurrection is God's way of bringing into being an unstoppable force called grace. Because grace was not necessarily unexistent before the resurrection, but we didn't understand it. It It didn't have the same reality. It had not yet been given to all people. According to the Israelites, God's favor had to be earned. You had to be part of a certain people group. You could be denied the mercy and love of God. But because of Jesus' grace, because of Jesus Christ, grace becomes available to everyone. And when I say it's unstoppable, it's because there's nothing I can do to prevent you from getting God's grace. And we should all thank God for that. Because sometimes I can be jealous. Sometimes I can be biased. Sometimes I can be angry. And and if they're up to me, you know, I, I would be a humanist. That person doesn't deserve God's grace. They're terrible people. But it's not up to me. It's not up to you who gets grace. It's unstoppable. God's grace is for every single person. And this is possible because of the resurrection. Paul writes in Romans, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
Christ's death offers us forgiveness. Christ's resurrection is what gives it meaning. It's what makes it last. Because if just, Christ had just died and didn't come back, most people probably wouldn't have remembered it. It might not have had the same implications it does. It is the resurrection that gives meaning to the crucifixion. And it is the resurrection that gives meaning to our lives as Christians. Because of the resurrection, God's grace is for you. And it is free for you. God's grace goes before you before you even know God. God's grace is seeking to offer you forgiveness as we accept the salvation Christ offers for us. And that as many of us in here can attest, even after we have been saved, we've been justified, we've accepted that salvation, life is still hard and we still mess up. But God's sanctifying grace continues to be with us now and always. And there's nothing you can do to lose it. God's always gonna be with you. God's always gonna love you. God's grace is always gonna be for you. There's no sin that you've committed that God can't forgive. There's nothing you've said or done or thought about yourself that God's grace does not cover. The resurrection has meaning because God loves you. And God's love full of grace, is unstoppable. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you that your grace is abundant, that it is ever-present, that it is always at work. We thank you that these stories have meaning for our lives, that they weren't just events that we forgot about, but they were events that, that carry forth life-changing grace. Lord, as we come to your table, we ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness for the times when we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray, when we have not been obedient to your word. Forgive us, free us for joyful obedience to you, Jesus Christ, our Lord, now and forever. Amen.